0: My name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Growing up, my family loved to camp. I have so many memories of our two-week summer vacation camping trip down at the beaches of Punta del Este in, uh, in Uruguay, South America. And uh, the campgrounds were very, very rustic back then. And uh, as an adult now with children of my own, grown children of my own, actually, I, I have such an appreciation for my mother and for those two weeks of, of camping because even when the campground down the road got its first bathhouse where, where I grew up, my mother wanted to go there. She was vetoed by all of us four boys. We wanted the rustic campground. Mom, bless her heart. She was she was willing to continue in affectionately what we call the honey bucket. And, uh, and so I have just grown in appreciation for my mom during those, those early days of camping for my, my family. Each day at the end of, of swimming in the ocean, we would go to what was called the manantiales, and that's a word for springs. And there was a spring that came out of the side of a hill there near the beach, and it was ice-cold water. Boy, they did have some pressure, though. It was turned like this, and you could get under it, freeze yourself, but at the end of the beach day, we'd all go there and shower up that was our shower right and then we'd uh, then we'd go back to the to the campground we all helped set up the camp as, uh, as maybe those of you who have camped have known, we all set up the camp. But, uh, but not like this particular family I read about. A loaded minivan showed up at the last campsite available. And four children lumped, jumped out of the uh, vehicle and began feverishly unloading all the campground equipment. The boys were busy setting up the tent. And as soon as they got the tent set up, they were out getting firewood, wood rushing around. The girls were setting up the, the camp stoves and getting everything ready as far as cooking is concerned. A nearby camper went up to uh, this youngster's father and said, sir, what a display of teamwork. I've never seen anything like it. And the father said, well, I have a system. And he said, well, what's that? He said, well, my system is this. Nobody goes to the bathroom until we've got the campground set up. <laughs> I think my father would have benefited from, uh, from such, a, uh, such an idea of making us set up before anybody could go to the bathroom. Today we're back at the Festival of Booths. If you were here last week, you will know that we're studying through the Gospel of John, and we're actually in chapter 7, and it was just too much material to cover in one, in one sitting, I felt like, and so we divided the chapter in half. So we're back at the Festival of Tabernacles now, the Festival of Tabernacles was a once-a-year Jewish holiday, October 15th, or that week involved there. And it was a, it was a camping trip is really what it was. For, for eight days, the Jews would move out of their house and they would build themselves a tent out of thatch and branches. And they would live in that thatched little thing they built, they would live there for eight days. Now, the children, they say, I mean, I guess there's some extra biblical writings, but they say this was, the kids loved this festival because they were, in essence, camping. And it was a very joyful celebration, one which they were commemorating the fact that God had Taken them out of the wilderness after 40 years of wandering, he had taken them out and brought them into the promised land. So it was remembering that excursion of those 40 years and God's grace to actually bring them out. Jesus' brothers come to him and invite him to go with them. I told you last week, I think they want him to go public and they want him to go big. But he is not willing to do that. He says, I'm not going up with you right now. But then later in the week, he went up secretly himself to Jerusalem to the festival of of the booths or the festival of tabernacles. And about midweek, it was only the middle of the week, probably Wednesday or so, when he went and showed himself in the temple. He went into the temple and he sat down and he began to teach. Immediately, those in leadership focus in on him. And the scripture tells us, John tells us that they are amazed by Jesus' teaching. Teaching. The common folk were amazed by Jesus' teaching as well. And they were amazed because he taught like no one, ever, no one else taught. He taught with this authority that they recognized and they saw it. Okay? But the leaders recognized his teaching and were amazed because they said, He's not educated. He's not sat under any rabbi. Where, where, is, he, where is he getting this teaching from? And they began to accuse him of making up his own teaching. If you were here last week, you'll know that Jesus defended Himself and He said, My teaching is not my own. My teaching comes from God. And if you have any heart to submit to God, if you have any desire to submit yourself to the Creator, then He will let you know that my teaching is actually from Him. And Jesus wouldn't let up. He kept on. He pressed them back. He accused them of hypocrisy. He accused them of saying they're they're keeping the law, but they're not keeping the law. He even accused them of of trying to murder him and not keeping the law. And then he called on them, and I called on all of us, to judge with righteous judgments. And I said last week, that means to judge with good motives. I mean, excuse me, to judge not judging people's motives, okay? We, we We don't have the luxury of seeing into someone's motives, And like I told you about the brothers, what was their motive in asking Jesus to go with them to the Feast of Tabernacles? It doesn't tell us, so we can speculate about their motives, but ultimately we don't know what motivated them to say, come with us to Jerusalem. All right, you follow me? And we said, hey, we need to judge with righteousness ourselves. Today, this is the practical application of what Jesus said to them. It would be to us, judge righteously. Don't judge motives. And the other thing was to be careful of your own preconceived ideas, your own prejudgments. We do this. I, I see it in social media all the time that we judge people who differ from us or who don't agree with us. We're judging their motives. We're judging their heart. We're calling them people who name the name of Christ are calling people in opposition to them scum and other kind of things like this. How dare us? This is the kind of thing that Jesus says when he says judge righteously. That's the kind of thing I think that he was talking about for us. We need to be careful how we, how we judge. And that brings us to the continuation of the story. We find ourselves still in the temple, uh, in the text. We find ourselves still in the temple. And this morning I'd like to, if I could, garner... Just a few more practical lessons, you know, from, from the text. I, I'm the first to admit that these are applications that are coming from what I think are lessons Jesus wanted to teach. We're, we're not going to find the specific application necessarily in, in the text. Maybe some of these we will. But uh, I want to share with you some lessons that I see in the text. Here's the first lesson that I want you to, to, to grab hold of in what we're going to read. And, this is, and it's this. And, and I hope I'm not being offensive in saying this. I looked it up online. I don't think I am. Jesus is not a homeboy. Jesus is from heaven. What that means in in, in maybe older folk English would mean Jesus isn't from your town. Jesus is from heaven. Let's look at the text, beginning with verse 25. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Messiah, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But wherever Messiah may come, whenever the Messiah may come, no one knows where he is from. Now, you remember last week that some of the people, when Jesus said, you are trying to speaking to the Jewish leadership, you'll remember that some of the people said, you're crazy, man. Nobody's trying to kill you. Can't you see yourself sitting there in the temple? Nobody's accosting you. Nobody's saying anything to you. What what do you mean somebody's trying to kill you? And we said most likely the people that were saying that were people who um, either were from out of town and just didn't know about what was going on, or they were already detractors from Jesus, and so they were just siding with with the Pharisees and those in, in those in power, those in control. In this text we learn that there are some people who are amazed. There are some people who are amazed by Jesus teaching in the temple that day. You remember early in chapter 7, one of the things that we learned is that whether you were for Jesus or whether you were against Jesus, you were unwilling to speak publicly because of your fear of the Jewish leadership. So Jesus seemed to have been an anathema subject when it came to public discourse. You wouldn't stand up and say, hey, I'm for this Jesus. Have you seen this? Have you heard about Jesus of Nazareth up in Galilee? They wouldn't do that because they were afraid. Well, those same people, it says in these verses that I just read to you, are amazed that Jesus would take himself into the temple and sit down and to begin to teach like he did. And that led some of them maybe to kind of ask out loud this question, do you think it might be possible that the rulers really think he's the Messiah, you know? And then they make this statement they said, but you know, we we know that we know where Jesus is coming, we know where he comes from, but Messiah when he comes, no one is going to know where he comes from. So how could he be the Messiah? Now, you need to know a little bit. This is where context and historical context makes a difference. One of the things that the rabbis taught was that Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Remember this verse that says, All of a sudden, all of a sudden, Messiah will come into His temple. And I believe that actually took place. I'm going to move this down a little bit. Sorry. Um, I believe that actually took place. I think when Jesus stepped into the temple, Messiah, God himself, stepped into the temple. It was pretty sudden. It was just, you know, out of the blue, he comes and he steps into his temple. But rabbis taught that that verse means this, that no one knows where Messiah is going to come from. In other words, just out of the blue one day, he's going to show up in the temple, and he's going to be in the temple. And nobody will know where he comes from. That's what they taught. And so when these... People are making the statement, "How can this man be Messiah?" Because we know what town he's from. He's from Nazareth. He can't be the Messiah because we've been taught all along the Messiah is just going to show up out of nowhere, and nobody will know where he's from. Now Jesus tackles this, you know, right, right, uh, right away, and um, and he ignores their their mistaken concepts, their superficial arguments. And and this is is what he says in verse 28. Jesus therefore cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Now, verse 28 is probably better translated. In fact, some of your translations, if you're following along in a different translation, your translation may may actually interpret the text like this. But but it seems to me, and most commentators seem to think this, that, that the idea that Jesus is raising in verse 28 is, you think you know me? You think you know where I come from? You think I come from Nazareth? Listen to me. I do not come from Nazareth. I come from heaven. I am not a local Nazarene boy. Now, did he grow up there? Absolutely. But Jesus is looking beyond just Bethlehem, and he's saying, where I came from originally is from the side of God. I am God. I came from heaven. That's what he's saying. Now, we need to realize that, that, and it'll come out at the end of the story here in chapter 7. We'll see it at the very end. But, But let me say it right now that... The idea that Messiah would come from Nazareth is sort of like the idea that a, a president, a statesman, would come from Mayberry that produced Barney Fife and Floyd the, the, Floyd the barber, right? We, we can't even imagine, you know, you know we, we've got this picture, the stereotype of Mayberry from the Andy Griffith stories, right? Well, that's kind of the idea. Can any, I think somebody said in one of the texts, in the can any good thing, oh, I know who it was. It was one of his disciples said, can any good thing come out of, out of Nazareth? At the end of this story, you'll see that the Pharisees reject Jesus because they say, look at your Old Testament. No prophet comes, not only from Nazareth, no prophet comes from Galilee even. But here's the lesson. Here's the lesson that I want us to glean from what Jesus is saying. And really, this isn't a a pragmatic or practical lesson. This is just a a, a you-know-it-in-your-heart sort of lesson. This is the lesson. Jesus is not from any local town. Jesus is from heaven. John chapter 3, verse 13, Jesus said this just a couple of chapters ago in our, in our study of John. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. So Jesus says, nobody goes to heaven. I've come down from heaven. And not only that, he says it over and over again. John 3.31 He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is of the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. If you remember the context, he's talking about himself. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me John 6:38. John 6:51 I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread he will live forever and the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. John chapter 8, verse 23. And even the Apostle Paul understood this reality because he said to the church at Corinth, he said, the first man is from the earth, earthy, the second man is from heaven. So don't miss this core message, everyone. I want you to get this. I want you to see it. I want it to be embedded in your soul so it never leaves you. Jesus is not from Nazareth. Jesus is not from Bethlehem. Jesus is from heaven. We've made a point of repeatedly saying this over and over again. I want to say it to you again this morning. I'm hoping that somehow it will anchor, anchor itself in your, in your being. You'll never forget it. Jesus is the eternal God because He comes From that eternal heaven where God dwells. I don't know much about heaven, but Jesus is from there because the Bible says he is eternal in his being. His conception was supernatural. His nature was different. He was fully God, fully man. Now listen, I don't understand that any more than you do, right? But God, Jesus, is both fully God and fully man. And he didn't compromise either of those things. And he became, he became the God man. He wasn't created. He wasn't created in Mary's womb. When he came into the earth through Bethlehem and Nazareth, that that was not his beginning. That was his entrance into our world as, as the person that he is, the second person of the Godhead. We continue in verse 30. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When Messiah comes, he will not perform more signs than than those which this man has, will he? The Jews wanted to take Jesus by force and kill him because of what he was saying. I'm sure there were some men that day that were extremely angered by him, yet they would not move on him. Why would they not move on him? I, I think the text implies that God restrained them. How did he restrain them? Maybe with their consciousness. I don't know. Maybe he spoke to their consciousness, put fear in them, but they would not touch Jesus. But notice in the text it says, some in the crowd believed. And, and those who did believed, now note it, they believed why? They believed because of the evidence of what they saw. Now I'm going to go off my notes here for just a second. I'm going to talk to you about something because this is so important. Why do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Is because He's done something in your heart. You know the old hymn we sing? I know, I know, he know He lives because He lives within my heart. I'm not trying to take anything away from, from that, but I'm going to tell you what, I, I think... I think just every other world religion could sing the same song. How do I know Muhammad lives? How do I know Buddhism is right? Because it's in my heart and it feels right. I'm not trying to say that that's not a legitimate thing. What I am trying to say is that we have to go beyond the subjectivity of our own heart, I think, to reality and say, is there any objective reality on which my faith is built? And I want to say to all of us, and and we should preach this, we should talk about this, this should be paramount to all of us, and that is that Christ... Christ rose from the dead. He's alive. That is why we believe. That is why I follow Jesus. I can't speak for you, but I follow Jesus because I think He conquered death. I don't think He's in a tomb anymore. I think He came back to life after three days. I think He has been changed into a glorified body. I think, as we'll see in just a second, something He says, that He is back in heaven with the Father. I think He is not here anymore because, and that's why i I believe. I believe because there were some men that would know. Jesus said this. He said to His disciples, you believe because you've put your fingers in the holes. You believe because you've seen. Remember, he appears to James. James believes because he's seen. Jesus recognizes this. He says, blessed are those who will believe and yet have never seen. Blessed are them. But why do we believe? I believe because Thomas put his fingers in the hole. I believe because all of those men ended surrendering their life for what they claimed they knew, right? Many people die for a lie. Many people die for things they think are true. But if there's anybody who would know whether Christ Rose from the dead. It was those men. And so they're either perpetuating a lie on purpose or they're dying because they saw Jesus risen from the dead. And that is why I ultimately believe. if you want to refute my faith don't refute my faith as being subjective refute my faith by saying Jesus never rose from the dead and I guarantee you many many people have tried to do that and I'm not saying that you can't even build some sort of argument for that I'm just telling you as for me I am convinced that Jesus conquered death and that is why I follow him and that is why you should follow him as well because he conquered death Now let me go back and see if I can find myself. Okay. Oh, they they believed because of the evidence they saw. They said, listen, if Jesus isn't the Messiah, could there be any man who will do what this guy has done but more? I think not. That's what they say. And so they, they followed Jesus because of that. 32, verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him, now, I think thirty-two may have just maybe a shift away from that that Wednesday, that first Wednesday, uh, or no, it can't be. I'm sorry. Let's continue on because the context still continues on. But, but at some point, the the chief Pharisees from their little you know huddle somewhere in the temple, I guess they they send people to arrest. They send the temple guard to arrest Jesus. They never will. But they're going to send the temple guard. We'll see more about that at the end of the chapter. Now, the Jewish leaders, they, 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 they are upset about what they're hearing. And that kind of brings us to the second lesson in the text. And here's the second lesson. Again, this is not all that practical. This is, this is more just about your faith. This is about the formation and foundation of your faith. It says, Jesus said, I'm not here anymore. I'm returning to heaven. Look at verse 33. Therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer, I am with you. And then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Jesus loudly speaks up to to the crowd. And he says, listen, I'm only going to be here for a short time more. And then I'm going to return to the Father. I'm going to return to heaven from where I've come. Now, can I tell you, we know exactly how long that's going to be. I mean, we could actually figure it down to the day, I would imagine. But it's, it's pretty much six months and, and 40 days. Because six months from this time is the Passover sacrifice. Is when Jesus is going to die. He, then he'll, he'll resurrect, be with us for 40 days. And then he will return. He will return to heaven from, from which he came. He says to them, you'll look for me. You'll look for me after that, but you won't find me. You can't come where I am going. I'm returning to heaven, and you can't come there, he says. Now, let's talk about the verses that say that he actually did that. Acts chapter 1, verse 11. And they also, men, they also said, this is after Jesus has risen from the dead. He's been with them for 40 days. Now he's returning to heaven. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Hebrews chapter 8. verse. Now we could say, well, heaven's not God's heaven there. Heaven is just, he's going up into the clouds because we know he went up into the clouds. Maybe heaven doesn't mean God's heaven. Maybe it just means he disappeared up into the sky. Well, we know that's not the case because of the further things we read in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1. Now the main point is what has been said, of, what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1. So Jesus is in God's heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says the same thing. Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. So Jesus came from heaven. And Jesus has returned to heaven and he is enthroned on high once more as he always was. Having lowered himself, we talked about this last week, having lowered himself to become a creature, coupling his nature with ours, he, he has lowered himself. Now he has been restored to his glory in heaven. Now, before I leave this, listen to me, listen to me carefully. He did not leave us alone. He didn't abandon us. Jesus didn't leave us to go to heaven and just kind of leave us on our own to fend for ourselves. He made it abundantly clear over and over and over. This text is actually going to talk about it, but he, he left us someone. Not a thing, not an it, not just power. He, he left us someone. The third person of the Trinity comes to take residence in our lives. And so Jesus says, we'll study this later, but in John 14, 16, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you will be in you these things i've spoken to you while abiding with you but the helper the holy spirit whom the father will send in my name he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that i said to you we are not alone everyone jesus has not abandoned us and though we wait for him for, from heaven and his return has tarried he has been with us always he will never abandon us, never leave us. He will strengthen and encourage us and help us. Today, God's Spirit is the one that's here with us this morning. He's the one that I've been asking today to manifest the glory of God among us. He's the one who lives in us and teaches us and disciples us and helps us. He's the one when you're discouraged beyond measure, seeks to lift you up. He's the one that when you're filled with joy, He's rejoicing with you, just making your joy that much more. He's the one that's going to help you. You are not alone. Verse 35. The the Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greek Jews. I added the word Jews there. He's talking about that. Is he? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? The Jews listening didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They said, what is he talking about? Is he, is he talking about going to the Jews who are in Thessalonica and Galatia and Corinth? Is he going to do what Paul's going to do in just a few, in just a few months or years? Is he going to do that? Is he, is he going out to those Jews? And, and that's not what Jesus is talking about at all. Jesus is talking about returning to heaven. It would be Paul's job to go to the dispersion. It would be Paul's job to take the gospel to the Jews all over the Roman Greco world. That would be his primary calling. Uh, They they, they missed the point. And honestly, I I think we sometimes miss the point of what Jesus is saying here as well. Now, before we move on, to finish the text, I want to share with you another lesson that I feel like I have to share that ties these first two together. This isn't in the text, so just... uh, Put up with this, okay? Here's, here's the first lesson. Jesus came from heaven, right? Here's the second lesson. Jesus is returning and from our vantage point has returned to heaven. Here's the third lesson, though, that I, I just feel like I have to say. We now await for his return from heaven yet again. We long await for his return from heaven. This time he's going to come in glory this time he's not going to come incognito born of a, of a virgin woman in a little town of Bethlehem to a, to a carpenter laid in a manger because there wasn't, even, there wasn't even a place for them to stay when they went back for the census. You know, Jesus isn't coming like that again. Jesus is coming this time. Every eye shall see. Every knee shall bow. Jesus is coming with power. Jesus is coming with judgment. And Jesus is coming. And this is the wonderful thing. He is coming with restoration in His hands. He's coming to restore everything that's been broken. Everything that's been damaged by our rebellion and sin. I mean, that's my hope. Isn't that your hope this morning? That Jesus is going to return and make all things right. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he says, he says, the whole creation groans waiting for the redemption of mankind because in the redemption of mankind, He's going to redeem it all. He's going to fix all that's broken. And He's going to restore it. He's going to rule as King of kings and Lord of lords. We wait for His return from heaven. Now back to the story, verse 37. Now on that last day, the great day of the feast, now obviously we were on Wednesday, now we're on the last day, which I think may have been been Sunday. Now on the last day of the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit whom we were just talking about, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Each day of the Feast of the Tabernacles, the priest would go down to the Pool of Siloam. By the way, the Pool of Siloam meant the one cent. So they would go to the Pool of the One Cent and they would grab water and then they would take it back to the altar. And every day of the Feast, they would pour out that water on the altar and it would be a reminder to them, it would be a reminder of what God did in the wilderness. Not only did God supply manna, but He supplied water out of rocks, right? Where they provided for their needs. And so this was a reminder of God's provision of water for the entire Israelite uh, crew that walked in the wilderness. Now we know that the Apostle Jesus basically says on that day, and probably most everybody believes that he probably coincided these words with the pouring out of that water on the, on the altar. And so when they're pouring out the water, giving thanks and being happy for the, the drink that God gave them, remind, remembering that, it's probably then that Jesus cries out these words, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, me, as the scripture said, from his inner being will flow rivers of living water. Most most people believe that it's in conjunction with that that Jesus says this, which, which carries so much different meaning, doesn't it? So Jesus, in essence, is saying, you know, like that water that came out of the rock, I'm like that water that sustains you, that came out of the rock and sustained us in the wilderness. I'm that water that sustains your soul. And I think the Apostle Paul even picked up on that. So he would write in one of his letters, he would say, let's see if I got it down. Yeah, 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, he would say, Jesus is the rock from which that water came. And I think he probably is using this thing that Jesus said at the Feast of Tabernacles, to, to draw that conclusion. Jesus is the rock from which men drink that seems maybe impossible. But from Jesus, the rock flows water and men believe and people's thirst is satisfied. Am I right about this? I mean, you just answer in your, in your heart. Am I right? Do people, do people thirst for significance? The people let me no, let 's not talk about people let's talk about you. Do, do you thirst for significance? Do you thirst for meaning in your life or, or do you, are you just content to be here and live and die and, and uh, do, you, do you ever thirst? To know what the purpose of life is. I mean, does life have a purpose? Is life going anywhere? Is death the end of life? Or is, is that all there is? Do I all only have these? Do you, ever, do you thirst for that? I think as a young man, I, thirst, I thirsted for that. I thirsted for that. Maybe, maybe not everybody thirsts for that. But I think many of us, maybe most of us, thirst for that sort of meaning and significance and purpose in our life. And Jesus said, if you are thirsty for that, come to me. Then I'll be a river of living water. I will satisfy that thirst. I will bring chaos to your soul. And then he says more, though. He says, not only will I bring chaos to your soul out of you, out of you will flow rivers of living water. And that kind of brings me to, that brings me to my final lesson. Okay? So really there's, a, I think there's only like three lessons that, that I'm sharing with you. I made up the fourth one. But, but here's, here's the third lesson from this story, from this text, and it's this. You, now, this is where it does get practical. This is where it's not just something for you to know that's foundational for you. This is something for You, you, are to be a fountain of living water for people. Out of you ought to flow rivers of, of living water. Now, what I think Jesus means by this is not that you personally satisfy that, that longing that people have to know what life is about. But I think Jesus is saying, as my as I come into your heart and your life and I... Satiate that that desire for meaning and purpose and significant and significant and I give you peace and I give you joy. Out of you is going to flow that that's going to lead people to the source of the river of water that's flowing out of you, which is Jesus. You you need, listen everyone, this is this is God's plan. You need to be the one that Jesus is just flowing out of you so that people come to know. Jesus, because they so they can come to know the one who will satisfy the longings of their heart. You know, I, I've you know, I've told you about what God's done for me in in being able to share. Uh, share about my hope because after Shep died, I've told you about that. You know, one of the things that I think. One of the reasons why this has become so helpful to me is I think that what I'm trying to pour out of my life when I talk to them about what I've gone through is I'm trying to be a river of hope to people beyond death. And I think that's why, you know, for the first time in my adult Christian life, I feel like when I tell people about Jesus, I'm, I'm telling them about this water that satiated my soul. I'm telling about this water that refreshed me and and gave me peace and gave my life meaning and gives me joy in the midst of, you know, which should probably take away my joy forever, right? He's given me joy. And so I think that's why that is. When when people tell me they follow Jesus, you know what I look for? I, I look to see, is water flowing out of you? That, that would quench the thirst of others. You know, if water's not flowing out of you to quench the thirst of others, I, I, I wonder, I wonder, has He put the fountain of life in your heart if water's not flowing out of you? But when I see someone who says, man, I follow Jesus, and what flows out of their life is is just love and grace and meeting people's needs and dying to self and living selflessly, I say, I see the waters of life flowing out of you. When I see people who have been crushed or, or pressed but not crushed, I said it wrong, pressed but not crushed, I see the water flowing out of them. And that's what Jesus said that day. And that's what I think is the lesson for us today. Only when you drink from the water that is He can living waters flow out of you. That's the only time living waters will flow out of you is if you are drinking deeply from from the waters that are Him. Now, John notes to us, he says, he's talking about when the Holy Spirit is given. I don't understand the difference. I don't quite get it because I know the Holy Spirit has still been at work in the Old Testament. He was at work then. In fact, Jesus said in the text, if you caught it, he he was talking about how the Holy Spirit was working with them. But but he says here that God is going to indwell us by his Spirit. So he is with us and he's the water that's going to flow out of us. Let me ask you an honest question this morning or I want you to be honest and and just, I'm going to ask you this question again so you can be meditating on this even as I finish talking for the next few minutes, minutes. Does a river of life flow out of you? Are you a life giver to others or do you drain the life out of them? Does coming into contact with you fill them with the Spirit or drain them of love, joy, peace? Verse 40, let's look at the text. Let's finish the chapter. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Remember, there's a prophet that Moses talks about in Deuteronomy. They say, certainly, he's that prophet. Others were saying, this is Messiah. Still others were saying, surely the Messiah is not going to come from Galilee, is he? There's that whole issue of Nazareth again. Has not the scripture said that the Messiah comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Here's what John tells us. The people are divided. Who is Jesus? Is he Messiah or not? And some are saying he is, and some are saying no, he can't be because he comes from Hicktown, Nazareth. He can't be the Messiah. They're divided over him. Here's the deal. But there's no neutral people, it seems. There's no neutral people. In fact, if I could suggest to you, and some of you want to remain neutral. You want to be on the fence so I can fall off the right way. You know, when when the time comes, I want to fall off onto the right side. I tell you, there's no neutrality here, everyone. Jesus said, if you're for me, you're for me. If you're against me, if if you're not for me, you're against me. Those are the words that he said. It's funny, they they make the statement. They say, this can't be Messiah because Messiah is coming from Bethlehem. (laughs) They knew the Old Testament prophecy. They just didn't know that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem. Despite people's rejection, no one laid a hand on him. Verse 45, The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers ha- answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. They obviously had a powwow at some point in their, in their Pharisee chambers. And they say, You know, we sent you to arrest him. Why didn't you arrest him? Their, point, their, their statement was, Nobody talks like him. Now, what they mean by that, uh, who knows? Nobody talks like him. The crowd was, we were too scared of the crowd. Do they mean that? Hey, no, nobody talks like him. We weren't going to arrest that man. What do they mean exactly? I don't know. But they, they said nobody talks like him. The Pharisees then answered them, because here's an indication of what they're thinking. You have not been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? Well, actually, one of them had. But, his, but this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed, and Nicodemus, who came to him by, by night before him, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? And they answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee." And then verse 53, which probably goes with the next section, says everyone went to his own home. You know, you see a little glimpse into Nicodemus's heart, don't you? Here's Nicodemus, you know. And none of the Pharisees believe in him, do they? And Nicodemus doesn't jump up, Jill, and say, I do. <laughs> he doesn't do that. But yet he stands against his peers and says, you know, our law says this is not what we're supposed to be doing. Nobody does, nobody, we don't judge a man without hearing him. So there is a sense in which Nicodemus is, is standing up for Jesus and will ultimately stand up for him. Remember the prophecy that said there's no, they, they said, there, look, at, look at the scriptures. There's no prophecy that the Messiah is going to come from Galilee, is there? Actually, there is. It's Matthew chapter 4, verse 15. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness, saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. And we learn that that is a prophecy concerning the coming of Jesus to Galilee. So yes, there was a prophecy that Jesus would come to or from Galilee. That ends, chapter 7 ends the feast and people return home. I have two concluding responses I'd like to ask of you this morning. And and one of those responses is, are you willing today to receive the Lord Jesus? I'm asking you today, are you willing to turn your back on, on everything else and come to the river of living water? and let him satiate your soul let him fill you to overflowing are you willing today to receive the lord jesus i want to invite you to receive the lord jesus it's 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 not a it's not a it's not a big thing it's a matter of you in your heart saying god I want to trust in Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I want to receive Jesus. I want to believe and trust in Him. Right now, where you sit, in that seat, is your opportunity to trust in Christ. And I want to invite you to do that. I want to invite you to let me know about that. Um, You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to invite you to let me know about that. If you receive Jesus, you tell me about it. So that I can help you. We can help you. I want to help you grow as a Christian. But most of you here today, this morning, you're here because you trusted Christ. You are seeking to follow Jesus. So I have another question for you. And it's going to be sharp, but I'm going to ask it nonetheless. Are Are you a fountain of living water? Or are you a stagnant cup of bitter herbs? What are you? Are you a fountain of life to others so that when you come, when they're in your presence, when you're with them, what people receive from you is this refreshment of of Jesus coming out of you? Or are you just a cup of bitterness, a cup of discouragement, You know, we all have our moments. Let's be honest. There are times when all of us who follow Jesus are a cup of bitter herbs, right? I mean, we're not letting the living water flow out of us. And if anything, we're just letting our old self flow out of us. And it's not fun to be around. But I'm not talking about the momentary bitter cups that we might be. I'm talking about what is the tenor of your life. Is is Or is your life a conduit for the living water of Jesus? Let's bow our heads. It's kind of late, so we we won't sing in in conclusion to this. But I I really do want to ask you to do some self-examination. I I confess to you, um, I do not want to be... I do not want to be the opposite of living water. I don't want to not be that river of living water that people are refreshed in my presence, not because of me, but because of Jesus in me. That's who I want to be. Do you want to be that too? Then just, I'm going to be quiet for about, I don't know, 45 seconds, a minute. And I'm just going to give you opportunity in the quietness of your home I mean, of your heart, to talk about, to talk to Jesus about this. If your heart this morning is to be that river of living water, then I want to ask you to do something, not now, but get with someone you trust, someone you love, someone that you're willing to receive from them the hard stuff. And you ask them and you say, do I refresh people? Am, am, Am I... Am I a refresher of others, or am I a person who the rivers of Jesus' water don't, don't really, don't, really seen all that often in, in, often in me? Ask somebody you love. Let them, let them speak into your life, and then be willing to receive it. You know, yesterday morning at, at breakfast, my wife, through tears, basically told me something in my life that was not refreshing her, but draining her, that I was doing. And it was hard to hear, it really was. It was hard to hear, um, but I knew right away she was right, and, and I'm trying to work on it, not uh, confessing that it'll be a slow thing, but I'm, I'm trying to change so that what flows out of me to her is, is something that refreshes and doesn't, doesn't take away. I'd like to ask you to find someone you love, someone you trust, someone who will be honest, and ask them, Am, am I a river of refreshing water? And if not, how, how can I, how, help me, how can I change and be that, I want to be that conduit of Jesus' water. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the promises, Jesus, that though you have returned to heaven, you have left us not as orphans but with your Spirit who indwells us and empowers us. And we just thank you, Spirit, for living within us. Holy Spirit, help us, convict us of sin, empower us to choose right, empower us to live this river of living water that you want us to be. We, we confess our weakness. We confess how easy it is to stop up that river and, and just live through from the not-so-good stuff, from our, from our uh, leaky, stagnant cesspool, Lord. So I mean, uh, uh, well, Lord, help us. Not cesspool, from our well, Lord. Help us to live and let you live through us. We ask this that Christ might be glorified in our lives in all we do and say. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at BaconsCastle.com. Also, check out our website at BaconsCastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed.